All right, this is the fifth meeting of our class, uh, our marriage class, and so we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. We're covering uh, chapter six, actually. Hard to believe we're already that far into the book. Um, so yeah, just a little review you've got on your handout there. We'll start with the, uh, the handout. That I, I just like handouts, so you have tons of them floating around tonight. Speaking of which, did everybody get the, the two handouts for the lesson tonight? One has the word marriage at the top, and the other one has the confession of forgiveness case studies. Anybody need a copy of those? <laughs> break it up, break it up. No. <laughs> Yeah. Anybody else? Nathan? All right. So my goal tonight is to move through the chapter quickly so that we have time to get into groups and do this case study and fix someone else's marriage. That's always fun to do, right? Uh, so they're not real people, but anyway... All right, so um, you have uh, at the top of your notes there, you've got kind of the review of the first uh, four chapters and what we talked about there, how the gospel provides the foundation for marriage. And then uh, the second section, you have gospel commitments. And this is from Paul Tripp's book there. Uh, he's got six gospel commitments. The first is that we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. And so last week we talked about confession. Uh, we also used the term repentance, but agreeing with God about what happened, what I did, what it's called, it's called sin, and then turning from that and turning back to the Lord and making things right with my spouse as well. And so we talked about a variety of things last week um, in regards to confession. So tonight we cover the other, the other half of that, as it were, forgiveness. And we'll think a little bit about uh, what forgiveness means. And if I could just summarize our lesson tonight as we continue to think about the gospel, uh, forgiveness is, it's harder to put it more simply than treating somebody else the way Christ has treated me, right? And the scriptures that remind us that we need to forgive all use that illustration. So Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you, right? So it's based on what God has done. And we tend to want to forgive more so based on whether they deserve it, right? Was their confession good enough? Did they pay me back for what they did? Have I made them hurt enough yet uh, that I could forgive them? But um, forgiveness is clearly based on how Christ has treated us. He forgave me, and so then I ought to forgive others. The title of the chapter is Canceling Debts. So here's our opening discussion question. In what ways is forgiveness like canceling debts? And in what ways is it different? Right? So uh, let's say you have, let's say your student loan debts are still hanging over your head. I don't know if we have anybody in the room that still has student loan debts. That's totally okay if you do. But let's say they're still hovering over your head and then the lender gives you a call and they say, hey, we have good news. Uh, we decided to cancel your debt. It's done. It's gone. It's disappeared. Paid in full. You don't have to pay anymore. Whoa! You know, that'd be awesome to get news like that. So 
Compare that to forgiveness. How is that similar to forgiveness? How is that different than forgiveness? Started too hard, huh? Let's start with similar in the sense that the consequence is being kind of negated or taken away. Okay. It's different in the sense of in that particular instance, you didn't do anything necessarily wrong, uh, and you didn't even ask for that necessarily. Yeah. They just called you up and said, hey, we're canceling this, and, and yeah. it's going away. Yeah. Uh, forgiveness, um, not that someone has to ask for forgiveness, I guess, necessarily, but it, there's a wrong involved there that needs mm -hmm. to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, you hit on a number of really important things. Um, you know, it's not wrong to have a student loan debt, right? But the joy of that problem being removed is, is kind of like forgiveness there. Um, yeah, good. And some other similarities you mentioned as well. Steve? So I guess it's similar in terms of, right, that the penalty on us is gone, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like the Biden thing. Yeah. I shouldn't get into political. <laughs> but in that example, or in, in Christ's example, or in reality, there is payment. And mm -hmm. Jesus, right? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And in the student loan, someday somebody's paying. Yeah. 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 Depending on how it works. I mean, it's a made up illustration, but yeah, either the government's paying for it, or the lender's paying for it, or it just kind of disappears if it's funny money or whatever, you know. So, so yeah, that doesn't follow through. But with Christ, that's what's amazing about God's forgiveness is he doesn't just disappear our sins, right? The debt that we have is actually paid by someone else. It's paid by Christ. And that's an important thing to remember. We'll talk about that as we go through this tonight, is that even as you forgive other people, what you're doing is you're not sweeping under the rug. You're not hiding in the closet. You're not saying, well, nobody's ever going to pay for this. You're actually entrusting it to God, saying, okay, I trusted Jesus to pay for my sins. I'm trusting you to pay for their sins as well, right? So you're charging the debt to Christ's account. Um, and that's really important in forgiveness because you're not saying that it didn't cost anything. You're not saying that it you know, didn't mean anything. You're just being willing to trust God's plan to show mercy and grace through His Son as He did to me. And so that I can extend that mercy and grace to others and uh, not pretend like it didn't cost anything, but to trust that Christ's payment is enough to cover their sin as well. So uh, that's a key thought that we'll uh, mention a few times as we go tonight about forgiveness. All right, so uh, to work through the chapter, he opens on page 96. After, I think pages 94 and 95 are kind of a, a lengthy introduction and illustration from his own life of a debt he had canceled. Um, and then he brings up, uh, who are they? Sally and Jeb uh, have a story about how they're struggling in marriage. And he credits that to the fact that they haven't been forgiving one another. And so he begins with what he calls the harvest of unforgiveness. The harvest of, un oh, let me get my clicker working. Yes, come on. Oh boy. Here it is. All right, the harvest of unforgiveness. 
So he, he calls this kind of a pathway that we move down. And so he says that you actually often begin with immaturity and failure. And this is just that we do sinful things, dumb things, selfish things in marriage. We sin against each other. And so then he sort of says from there you have a path to go down. You can either begin a pattern of forgiveness in one another's lives or you can kind of harbor these things and you begin to accuse, blame, judge, and punish. Accuse, blame, judge, punish. That's a sequence of its own uh, that, that you'll hear a number of times tonight. Uh, no, it's your fault. This is, I'm blaming this on you. And then we start judging them for what they've done and even punishing them, whether that's silent treatment, whether that's yelling, any number of punishments we have in our arsenal in marriages. So he says it begins with immaturity and failure. Then we fall into comfortable patterns. Uh, we get used to clamming up or blowing up. We give the silent treatment while we rehearse the other's wrongs. We yell, we threaten, we minimize our wrongs. Uh, these are all relationally destructive patterns and they weaken the affection between a husband and a wife. Uh, they create distance. Rather than forgiving and moving toward each other, we attack, blame, judge, punish, and push each other away. Then we put up our defenses. We put up our defenses. These recurring battles of blame and accusation, we start building walls to protect ourselves. Uh, and so again, this is just creating more and more distance between a husband and a wife over time. He says on page 97, this combination of self-righteousness, convincing ourselves that we are not the problem, and accusation, telling our spouse that he or she is the problem, uh, destroys the relationship. Next, we nurture dislike. Again, this quote is helpful. Because both the husband and the wife are allowing themselves to meditate on what is wrong with the other person, rather than celebrating the good, their perspective becomes increasingly negative. We don't live by facts, but by the interpretation of facts. And so the negative assessment becomes the interpretive lens through which we view our spouse. What's not necessarily negative, we begin to interpret as negative. So that, those accusations, blame, judgment, punishment begin to color our view of the other person. There's no forgiveness. There's no cleaning of the glasses, so to speak. And so our vision becomes skewed. Our vision of our spouse becomes skewed over time. So here's just an example of what this could sound like in somebody's head. A husband bends down to tie the shoe of a little boy at church. And as the wife watches this act of kindness, she thinks to herself, well, they all think he's so kind, but he's just doing this to look good in front of others. Okay? So she's taken his act of kindness, tying the little boy's shoes, and she's interpreted in her head, right? He's just doing this so he looks good in front of others. So where has she gone wrong in that? What's, what's off with her assessment there? Yeah, she's not assuming the best. Good. Any other thoughts? She's judging him. Yeah, she doesn't know why he did that. Now, she may be able to draw a conclusion based on other events in their marriage and their life and know that he struggles with that you know he she can know those things 
But maybe he got right with God over those things. And in that moment was really trying to just serve that little boy. And, you know, so anyway, she's judging. You got it. Jumping to conclusions. That the other person. We, we do this kind of thing all the time in our head. And we, we're pretty blind to it. It's easy to miss. Easy to miss. Uh, next, number five, we become overwhelmed. It gets exhausting to be at war with your spouse every day. Uh, the same debates, arguments, and accusations day after day. So we're overwhelmed in our marriage, so we start envying other couples. He says this on page 98. It's tempting to wonder what it would be like to be married to that other woman or that other man. It's tempting to doubt God's love and wisdom when you feel that you have been singled out for difficulties that others aren't facing. <laughs> if they were married to her, they'd understand what I'm going through, kind of a thing, right? It's tempting to throw other couples in one another's faces. Comparing your marriage to the airbrushed public persona of another couple is always dangerous. Finally, you reach the stage of fantasies of escape. Feeling overwhelmed and envying other situations, discontent with your own situation. He says this on page 98. You tell yourself that you're the daily victim of the other's sin. You can't imagine that your spouse is ever really going to change. It all seems so impossible, so you begin to fantasize about escape. And that escape could look like any number of things. Uh, uh, resorting to just cold, separate existence under the same roof, or pursuing divorce, or murder, or suicide, or adultery, or separation, or moving out, or any number of ways that couples seek finally to seek that escape to just get away from the one who has become their battle enemy because they will not forgive. So this is the picture he paints of what unforgiveness leads to. And it's kind of like, wow, this, we're really going downhill fast here in this marriage course. Uh, so then he asks the question, why do we have so much trouble forgiving? Why do we hold on to these things and choose not to forgive one another? So he calls these the dark benefits of unforgiveness. First of all, debt is power. Debt is power. When... You have something that someone else has done against you. You can use their weakness. You can use their failure against them to manipulate them, hold it against them <clears throat> to get your way. Debt can become identity. As we highlight our spouse's sin, we by na nature begin to feel better about ourselves and begin to identify ourselves basically with just the idea of, well, I'm better than her. <laughs> and so that's how we find our confidence. <coughs> Excuse me. Debt is entitlement. Because our spouse owes us, we feel like we have the right to be self-focused. We've earned it because we live with this horrible person who's done so many things wrong against me. Debt is weaponry. We have ammunition for upcoming battles with our spouse. We keep track of these things in case an argument breaks out. We have kind of stored up our recollection of things they've done. Oh, really? Well, what about the time when you did this? You know, and so we have our daggers to swing back at our spouse. Finally, debt puts us in God's position. Not Deb. Your note should say debt. I don't know if you have a typo there on number five or not. Poor Deb. She's a... <laughs> no, it's debt, <clears throat> missing a T there. Debt puts us in God's position. 
We make ourselves judges when we don't forgive, when we hold sins against people. There's only one judge of the universe, ultimately, right? We understand in our government there are judges and so forth, but in the real sense of our eternal state and destiny and the one who holds the world in judgment, it's God. He alone is our judge. And so we make ourselves the one to dispense consequences and punish others. But that's, that's for God alone. That's not for us. <clears throat> so then on page 101, he begins to talk about what forgiveness is. Am I going too fast? Are you guys still with me? You doing all right? Okay. Got all the blanks so far. What is forgiveness? He talks about it having two parts to it. Number one, it's a vertical commitment. A vertical commitment. And this vertical commitment is, you could summarize it the way we did at the beginning. <clears throat> to treat this person the way God has treated me. So, because God has forgiven my sins, I will extend them grace. I will forgive their sins. So you have four things listed there underneath that. Uh, things that we can commit to do before the Lord. We give the offense to the Lord. We trust God with it. Um, we entrust ourselves to God's mercy and justice. We let God handle the situation. God will be merciful. He will take care of this. <coughs> Excuse me. We commit ourselves to overcoming evil with good. This is what Romans 12 talks about. Verses 9 through 21 repeats it a number of different ways. We overcome evil with good. And then finally, we commit to give our spouse the same grace that we have been given. Now, he mentioned something helpful on page 101. I want to just read this quote. This does not mean that you eat the offense and act as though nothing happened. It does not mean that you pretend you were not affected, offended, or hurt by what your spouse said or did. In fact, the Bible actually calls the one who has been sinned against to go to the person who committed the offense and present him or her with it. On page 102, he continues, The reason you must start with giving the offense to God is so that when you come to your spouse, you come with the right attitude, grace, and the right goal, reconciliation. Vertical forgiveness clears your heart of the baggage of bitterness and condemnation so that you can face him or her in a way that is kind, patient, loving, humble, and encouraging. So it may still be loving for you to, to bring this up to your spouse and to say, hey, something happened that we need to talk about. But when you've taken care of that vertical commitment first, you're going to them not to punish them and judge them and condemn them. You're going to them in love, to be a help, to care, and because you know that's what God wants you to do, as opposed to making them feel the pain that you felt by all this. Okay. So the second part of forgiveness is a horizontal transaction. <clears throat> a horizontal transaction. On page 102, he puts it this way. Husbands, it is not spiritually helpful for you or loving toward your wife to act as though what is not okay is okay. Wives, it is not good for you or kind to your husband to act as if a sin committed against you is all right. When we fail to bring such things into the light, they fester in the dark of our own sinful heart. And the other does not benefit from the conviction and confession that would help him grow and change. 
So there is this horizontal transaction. You could call the first vertical part, you know, something that goes on in our hearts. It goes on in our attitude. And it happens before we ever go to the person. And it's important always to start there. The second piece is relational. It's where we take the roadblock out of the way, the thing that's blocking our horizontal relationship here. And I take it out of the way. Now, ultimately, Jim brought this up by his, his example. It can't fully happen unless the person acknowledges as well that there's a problem and they want reconciliation too. And so that's where sometimes we need to go to them and, and help them understand that there is something here between us that needs to be talked about. Because sometimes people don't even know. And in our judgment and anger and bitterness, we like to just, you know, kind of stay angry at them until they figure it out. And that's why God's instructions are so helpful. No, if, if there's an offense between you and someone else, you go to them and you help them understand it, help them see it, and so you can make it right, so you can be restored. Um, and so that's where that horizontal transaction comes in. And that's where we take the attitude, the commitment we've made before God. You've forgiven me, so I want to entrust what's happened here to you. That's when we actually apply it. Sometimes we think of forgiveness as an event, right? Like when, like, like when we said the word, like it magically happens, you know? Like the, everything will feel better in the relationship and everything's healed suddenly, magically. That's really not how forgiveness works, is it? Forgiveness is a process. It's not an event. In fact, I like to think of it as a promise. When God forgives, He charges my debt to Christ's account. And He chooses to remember it no more on my account. Now, it's not that the event doesn't happen. And God doesn't even remove the consequences I might face, right? I might still have to face some difficult things, and God will walk with me through those things. And the way God handles forgiveness is so helpful for us as we seek to forgive others. So I move towards them. I offer them grace. I charge it to Christ's account, and I don't dwell on it when I think of them. I choose to forget it. So you have there four promises that really help with forgiveness on a daily basis because hard things, if you've been hurt and had to forgive somebody, it doesn't just disappear naturally, right? It's a choice on a daily basis. So number one, we promise not to dwell on it. So every time I see that person and, and that event comes to mind, oh, they did that. I can't, wait, I've forgiven them. I'm not going to dwell on that. Lord, help me to charge that to Christ's account and move towards this person in love, right? Number two, promise not to bring up the incident to the detriment of the other person. So I'm not pulling it out as a dagger in our next conversation. Oh, remember that time you did this, right? Now again, we're not pretending like it never happened. So it may come up. In fact, if the person is falling into a pattern, it's possible I will need to even talk about that event again in order to help them see the pattern. There's a difference between talking about something to help someone or talking about something to their detriment. Number three, we'll not talk about it with others, right? When I've forgiven somebody, I've removed it from their account, which means as I'm speaking with others about this person, I'm not bringing it up. Oh, you'll never believe what my husband did this week, right? These are not the stories we need to be telling people. 
Number four, the person promises not to let it hinder the relationship. Now, as I've helped people with this one, there's often a lot of hesitation here. Because, rightly so, there is a place for trust to change, right? If the person stole something from you, right? Now, should you forgive them? Yes. But is that going to change the way you trust them in the at least initial future until you build that relationship up? Yeah, of course it is, right? But you're not going to let that act of sin stop you from growing that relationship again, from working at it, from building trust again. So this is why these promises are helpful and things we have to work on. I'm sorry, I didn't put that last one up. Things we have to work on every day. All right, next. When is forgiveness needed? This is helpful because he talks about a few times um, when forgiveness actually might not be needed. The main time is when we have sinned against God and it has touched our spouse. Now, Other people in general, of course, but this is a marriage class. We're thinking about spouses here. Uh, The way he puts it is this way. In instances when one spouse has done something to the other spouse that the Bible calls sin. When we fall short of God's relational commands to us. Or when we don't show our spouse what Jesus is like. And we have to go to them and say, well, I fell short of God's instructions. Would you forgive me? On the other hand... It's not necessarily because of human weakness. We can sort of overhold things against each other and over-confess and forgive, right? Um, Maybe we were supposed to pick something up at the store and we forgot, right? Well, that's not a sin. That's being human. We we uh, We have shortcomings. Now, it could be a sin, right? Maybe you were distracted with something sinful, or maybe, you know, you were just being lazy and didn't want to pick it up, right? So there's all sorts of scenarios there, but it's not a sin to be human, to have weakness, to, you know, not be Superman at Superhero Night with the kids, right? So it's not a sin to not be Superman. So we will fail to have an accident in the home, right? To drop a piece of of glass and it breaks, you know, and, oh, would you forgive me? Well, no, that's an accident. It's a mistake. You know, you made a mistake. It's okay. Now, it is good and right to express sorrow, especially if our mistake, our accident has hurt the other person in some way, right? Of course, if we're loving and caring, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Can I make it up to you? Can I make it right? And we'd run back to the store and get the peanut butter that I forgot or whatever, and you get the idea. Uh, We don't necessarily need to seek forgiveness over differences in personality or perspective. Now, we can have some sinful personality traits, (laughs) right? If uh, my personality is prone to anger, then I might need to seek forgiveness over my personality, right? But just because a husband and wife see things differently, she likes the blue drapes, he likes the red drapes, they really shouldn't have drapes at all. But anyway, uh, the point is, you know, to have differences in perspective uh, is not sin, right? And so you don't have to seek forgiveness for those things. Uh, You get the idea. And then finally, uh, not necessarily needed to seek forgiveness for attempting something and failing. I don't know how many times I've tried to fix something for Carrie and had to get to a point where it's like, well, I just don't think I can do it. I think we're going to have to buy a new one <laughs> or, you know, whatever, find another solution. I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, that's not a sin, right? I don't have to seek forgiveness for that.
All right. Forgiveness requires a few things. So here's a quick list I will go through. It requires humility. And this is really helped by remembering that sin is first and foremost against God. We take so many offenses personally. But I'm not the Holy One who created the universe. That's God, right? Sin exists because God is God. And He's the one that holds us accountable. He's the one we sin against. And so that keeps us humble, and I don't have to take things quite as personally. Forgiveness requires compassion. If I can see in my heart the same kind of tendencies in this person that has sinned against me, right? So let's say they, uh, you know, I did something and they, just, they mocked me, they laughed at me. Right? And I'm hurt by this, I'm angry, I'm mad. But then I think back to that time that somebody else did something, and I laughed, and I mocked, and I realized, oh, wait a second. I have the same tendency in my own heart. So I can have compassion on them rather than judging, condemning, punishing. Forgiveness requires trust, and that's specifically trust in God. I have to trust Him to handle the offense. I have to trust God to do what is right with this because what I really want to do is just make them hurt. And that's not my place. I have to trust God. Romans 12 puts it well. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if you don't need to forgive somebody, you read the word vengeance and it sounds strong. But when it is time and somebody has hurt you, I'm thankful for the word vengeance. It's like, okay. The Lord knows about vengeance. He knows how I'm feeling right now. He knows how I want to get back with them, back at them. But I have to trust the Lord to handle that His way. My role is to forgive because Christ has forgiven me. It takes self-control. Thankfully, God's given us His Spirit, and that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. We have to hold ourselves back, keep words in, seek forgiveness from God. It requires sacrifice. Usually forgiveness involves a debt of some kind, sometimes even literally a financial debt that may not be paid back in full or that can't be fixed, it can't be restored. And so there is sacrifice with forgiveness. Finally, forgiveness requires remembering. And here specifically, we're remembering how God has forgiven us. We've got to think back to the way God has been kind to us, how God has forgiven us. He says this on page 107. When we are filled with the grief of our own sin and with gratitude for the amazing forgiveness we have been given, then we will find joy in giving to our spouse what we have received. Finally, let's talk about what forgiveness harvests. This is on page 107, and this is where he talks about what forgiveness creates in a marriage. First, it stimulates appreciation and affection. Maybe you can testify to this in your own marriage. But I can hardly think of times of sweeter unity with Carrie than the times right after she has forgiven me for something that I've done, right? The act of going to her and admitting the sin that I've committed, confessing it to her, that I've talked with the Lord about it, and asking her forgiveness. All of that is scary, it's uncomfortable, right? 
you know, you, you just you get sweaty thinking about having to do it, right? We, don't, we want to avoid those things. But, oh man, the sweetness of her just saying, hey, I forgive you. Thank you. And it's done. It's dealt with. And the, the unity and joy and affection that that creates in a marriage. Now, we would never sin on purpose in order to get to that point, right? That's not what I'm encouraging or saying at all. But I think it's a neat reminder of how God redeems even evil things for good. So that even our sin can be a source of growing unity in our marriage if we'll walk through that process of confession and forgiveness. God can use something that was a, a wedge between us to draw us even closer and tighter as a result. And so I just can't urge you enough to practice confession and forgiveness in your marriage. We have a little rule, either forget it or talk about it. Love covers a multitude of sins, and so we try not to require of each other that we have to talk about everything, right? We're not nitpicking every little thing. Oh, you, have, you, know, you put the fork a little too much to the right, away from the plate. It's not where I like it. We've talked about this. You know. No, get over it, right? So love covers a multitude of sins. So most things that happen, hey, just forget about it. But if one of us is struggling to let love cover it and to forget about it, then we talk about it. Because I don't, we don't want that festering in our hearts and becoming this thing that creates a further and further wedge. So, hey, I'm struggling to let this go. I'm not sure fully why. Maybe it's my fault, but I wanted to share it with you because it's there. I don't want to be close with you and I want you to know about this. And can we talk about it and figure out what happened and make things right? So either forget it or talk about it and make it right. That's a wonderful way to keep pursuing one another. Forgiveness produces patience. We learn that change really does happen, but that it takes time. I'm changing slowly. She's changing slowly. So we learn to be patient with one another. And then number three, forgiveness is the fertile soil in which unity in marriage grows. Forgiveness is the fertile soil in which unity in marriage grows. I really liked this last quote I'll share with you. Your marriage is no longer a daily competition for who is going to get his or her way. You no longer see your spouse as a threat, wondering just when he will once again get in the way of what you want. You're not obsessed with your comfort, pleasure, and ease, and with the fear of when your mate will interrupt it. No, forgiveness puts you on the same page with one another. You've both submitted your desires to the desires of another. You no longer try to build your own little marriage kingdom. Now together, you... Uh, live for God's kingdom. All right. One last illustration. Can you tell me the difference between this slide and this slide? Other than the, the image, is obviously different, right? Did you see the change in coloring? Okay, did you notice that that had been happening all through the lesson? In the beginning darker. In fact, every individual slide changed in its color tone by 2% every slide that we went through the lesson tonight. It was just meant to be an illustration to you of what can happen when we don't forgive. Uh, we don't really see it happening. Slide by slide by slide, things get darker. And then we look back at the color it started tonight. This is where we started tonight. And it's like, oh, wow, that's a whole lot different. So too with Forgiveness, right? We, sometimes the little things you don't notice. 
You just kind of let it go, but it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And pretty soon, it's gotten a whole lot darker. Our vision of one another has changed. We're not seeing hope anymore because we haven't stopped to clean the lenses with forgiveness. So there you go, just an illustration for you. All right, so turn to your case study. That's the other little booklet you have. We'll get as far as we can tonight, and then it'll be a fun activity for you to do with your spouse for whatever we don't finish. Um, and again, these sh should be available on our website as well with the audio. So if you want to uh, get another copy of it at some point, you should be able to do that. Let me read the story, and then I will uh, allow you to discuss a little bit here. Introduction. Al and Wendy are in their late 40s. They have three children, one in college and two in high school a senior and a sophomore. While Al has a good job, the mortgage on their home, two car payments, and a child have left their finances very tight, especially as they consider they'll have two in college next year. As a result, Al and Wendy have developed a budget and have agreed to a careful spending plan to help them cut back. The tension. After six months on the spending plan, they still aren't quite making ends meet. They have some debt building up uh, on one of their credit cards, they're just six months away from their middle child starting college. To top it off, their marriage is in shambles. They've been arguing about their finances consistently. Even with their tight budget, Al continues to spend money on golfing. Al, something they agreed they didn't have room for in their current budget. To top it off, he's been hiding it from her. She's found a few receipts in his pants when she does the laundry. Wendy, in frustration with Al's spending, decided to buy a piece of art for the living room she's been eyeing. She's been holding off because of their finances, but if Al's going to spend this freely, then she should be able to also. Wendy makes the purchase. The explosion. Wendy walks in the door carrying the expensive piece of art. Al is in the armchair watching TV. What's that, he says. It's something for our home. It's for the empty space in our living room. We've needed some color to fill that space for years, and I finally found something, Wendy replies. How much was it? Al says, with audible frustration in his voice. $235, but it was 30% reduced from its original price, she returns. $235? We don't have that kind of money right now. Get in the car and take it back, Al responds in a loud voice. I should be able to make purchases for our home, especially since you keep wasting our money on golf and lying to me about it. This isn't about the golf. It's my money anyway. I earned it. I can spend it how I want. Take it back, Al shouts as he leaves the house, slamming the door on his way out. Whew. The aftermath. Al and Wendy are both believers. They love the Lord and they are committed to working this out. Let's help them walk through the process of reconciliation. All right. So we know step number one, according to Matthew 7, is to take responsibility for our part of the problem. We learned that last week in the confession study. And so we've got to look for the log in our own eye until we're ready to address that log. And then we can help our spouse with the speck. So find a few people nearby and look at that little box there. Which of the following options represents the best actions for Al? And then the second set of questions, which of the following responses represents the best actions for Wendy? And in what ways do the others fall short? So read through those and discuss with some neighbors nearby, and then we'll see what you come up with.
All right, let's give it a try. So you may not have gotten through all of them yet, but uh, let's see what we can discuss. Let's start with Al's reactions. Number one, is that the right response? Why or why not? I guess some heads shaking no. Okay, good, good. Why not? What's wrong with Al's response there? Yeah, seeing her issue as a log and his as a speck. Good. He doesn't take responsibility for his part. Number two, what about that one? Is that the right response? No? Why not? It's putting a Band-Aid on the situation. Okay. It's just a Band-Aid, right? Not actually addressing the heart and actually what's going on there. Good. Number three, is that the right one? <laughs> it's all that's left. That's your reasoning, right? Yes, it is the right one. Good. Good. You got it. All right, let's go on to Wendy's responses. Number one, is that the right response? Some heads shaking no, why not? For all the reasons. It avoids the, they're not dealing with the root cause that's going on. Not dealing with the real issue. Yeah, yeah, kind of another Band-Aid type thing. Good. Number two, is that the right response? Got some no's. Okay, why not? Yep, still lack of taking responsibility for their part. I'd be horrible at creating multiple choice quizzes. It'd always, always be letter D, right? Uh, anyway, number three, is that the right response? It is. Hey, way to go. You got it. Good. Good, good. All right, so you get the idea. It's not always number three, actually, as you go through the rest of this. Um, let me go through the other steps briefly, and we'll close with that, and then you can kind of discuss these with your spouse at another time and enjoy that discussion. So step number two, after I've searched out the log in my own eye, is then I actually repent. I actually confess. And so you see that there between a couple of your boxes. I turn and I head the other direction. I've put that list of the seven A's of confession. We talked about those last week. Those are not rules. They're just helpful when trying to think through, have I covered everything I need to when I confess this? Step number three, then, is to forgive the other person. Okay, forgive, of course, if they've done wrong and they're seeking forgiveness, right? That's the premise here. But yeah, forgive the other person. And there again, you've got that list of those four promises of forgiveness, not to dwell on it, and so forth. And then finally, you move forward. Um, you take steps toward each other. You start moving. You don't have to dwell in the past with these things. It's time to start moving forward. So there you go. You've got a fun activity to do with your spouse this week. Uh, finish that case study and see if you can fix Al and Wendy's marriage uh, for them. So maybe you'll learn some things about your own as well. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. We just we rejoice and and. Uh, exult in the forgiveness you've offered to us in Christ. As we meditate on um, marriage, we just realize so quickly how broken we are and how often we sin against you. We fall short of your perfection and we marvel at your kindness in, in offering Christ in our place. And so we thank you. And as we uh, grieve our sin and, and find gratitude in Christ's sacrifice, may we be quick to forgive others because of the ways that he has forgiven us. We praise you and thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.